Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. Back in 1987, University of Illinois theoretical physicist Tony Leggett published The Problems of Physics, an engaging work of popular science that gave the layman a candid and captivating glimpse of the world of cutting-edge research from the front lines. At the time, it was quite a unique public offering, but its impact was naturally limited by a particular case of unfortunate timing. Overshadowed as it was by Stephen Hawking's phenomenally popular A Brief History of Time, which came out just a year later. But when I picked up Tony's book again over a quarter century after he had written it, a decade or so after he himself had picked up a Nobel Prize in physics, I found, much to my surprise, that there was still an awful lot there of contemporary relevance, and began to think that perhaps it made sense to have a follow-up conversation. I wanted to ask you about, about the problems of physics. What, do you remember, you may not remember, but what, what was the reaction to that when you first, when you first came out with that in 87? Um, I got a lot of interest from um, the sort of people I'd hoped to interest, that right. is, um, people who are not professional physicists but um, have uh, some interest in physics and moreover are prepared to do a certain amount of work on the subject. Sure. So I, I got some some quite um, uh, quite favourable reactions. So this was in the days before email, right? So you must have had letters and so forth. This was eighty seven. Did you get eighty seven? Yes. Um, phone calls, people knocking on your door at night. No, or? Probably, probably probably regular mail. I suppose. Right. Yes. To be honest, I don't remember too well. But, right. Mm-hmm. And what and, and the response was uh, thank goodness for this or, or thank they, you. They just for... uh, you know they liked it. Some, some of my colleagues also wrote saying they liked it. Um, one or two I think took objection to a few statements I'd made in it, but not many. But you were very careful to be very guarded. I mean, you, you have these phrases, I, I don't have them off the top of my head, but you have these phrases, of, so far what I've done is orthodox, and now I'm going, yeah. now I'm into the major speculative zone. <laughs> if you have a problem with this, if you are a professional physicist, you should be aware I have written other things. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. So I tried to guard my back as best I could. Right. <laughs> but even still, yeah. there were a few who... Uh, I think one or two, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I didn't, I didn't actually take umbrage, I just wrote saying that, you know, I didn't quite agree with what I'd said. And, right. Yeah. But there wasn't much in the way of popularization back in 1987, was there? I mean, um, actually, it was um, a time when there were beginning to be um, a number of popular books, particularly on the foundations of quantum mechanics and the interpretational problems of quantum mechanics. Right. Um, I think not so many in other areas, like, say, cosmology um, or to do with the arrow of time or anything like that. I mean, even today, I suspect there are not so many in that area. Right. Nowadays, of course, one has a um, real flood of, of popular books on quantum mechanics. Yes, a, del- but, a deluge, a tsunami, as it were. Uh, yes, indeed. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, so... Uh, 
when when I when I read this, I went back and read this. This was as as we were talking about before. This was reissued fairly recently, right, yes, by Oxford, uh, yes, Oxford University yes, Press, in mm, 2006 mm. or something like that, and and it came out in 1987. And I, I loved your 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 categorizations, which were uh, uh, the very small and the very large and the very complex and the very misunderstood or the very dimly understood or, or <laughs> yeah, worse than that. Like very unclear. I think it was the very unclear, right? <laughs> yes. right yes. Exactly. And I'd like to focus on the very unclear later on okay. because uh, mm-hmm. that's, mm-hmm. I think, the juicy juicy part. Yeah. But I think it would be fun to to go back and get a sense of uh, those same categories that, yes. that, that you gave yes. and do an analysis. Here we are in 2013. So where are we with respect to the very small the very large, the very complex, and 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 uh, and then later on, hopefully, the very unclear. How much progress have we made? Uh, what are the mm-hmm. mysteries that are that are still out there? And um, mm-hmm. uh, and and what's as I said before, what's keeping you up at night? Yes. <laughs> well, um, I guess if one starts with the very small, then by and large, um, I think one. Can say again, it's not an area which I've followed in great detail over the last 20 years since the uh, book was written, the original book, right. 25 years. Um, but um, I would say that uh, the uh, the standard model of uh, particle physics does seem to have worked rather well, by and large. Um, as far as I know, there have been no huge um, uh, no huge pieces of evidence which have claimed that the whole thing is wrong. Right. Uh, um, and of course, in the last year or so, um, one has had these experiments which um, uh, have discovered something which looks and smells pretty much like a Higgs boson, uh, which would be is a nice um, sort of central piece, uh, it's a piece, piece of the jigsaw, which uh, does seem to be fitting in rather well. So, and, and when you say looks and smells, from your perspective, uh, if I'm somebody who doesn't know anything about this, I say, well, Professor Leggett seems to be mostly convinced that this is really the Higgs boson. Is he really convinced that this is the Higgs boson, or is it just a question of you're waiting for the official corroboration from enough people? Or what, what is, is there anything, is there any lingering doubt in your mind, or, or are you just saying, I don't know enough about this area? I think I'm saying I don't know enough about okay. this area. Uh, I think to, to really uh, make a proper assessment of what, if you like, is the if one, I'm not sure if one can even define the concept, but if there is a certain degree of probability that the Higgs boson has been found, one would certainly need to right. uh, uh, to go into the nitty-gritty, both of the theoretical uh, predictions concerning it and the, the details of the experiment. I, I certainly can't. But I, So I'm basically um, just um, basing myself on the opinions of my colleagues and... Uh, Right. Uh, my, my impression is that uh, it seems a pretty good candidate. And there were some other things that that, uh, that you had mentioned. Again, it was it was shocking to me when I when I read this because I went into went into the experience thinking, "Wow, 1987, that was a long time ago. It was before we found dark energy, before we found uh, when string theory was a very different thing than string theory is now." There are all sorts of things. I, I was expecting, I guess, with the the hubris of uh, uh, of, of being filled with this sense of the, the inevitable march of the scientific method that we're going to look at this and it's going to be completely out of date and and and, and it wasn't that way at all. I found that that it, it really resonated with me in terms of the overall picture of what some of these issues are. You mentioned mm-hmm. supersymmetry, of course, as something yeah. that 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 people were talking about then in 1987, and they're talking about that's that now. Well, still, no, yes, of course. that's right. Yes, and, yes. Um, so yes, um, I. 
by and large, I think on the, as, at least as far as I'm, uh, I have any feeling for it, the, um, the picture in uh, particle physics has not changed that much over the last 25 years. And there are people who are talking about beyond the standard model physics yeah. now, mm. probably a lot more than, 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 than there were. Is there anything which, uh, uh, it's all speculative insofar as yes. there, is, there is no evidence yeah. for this, um, but is there anything that you think, granted this is not your area of expertise, but you're obviously very much aware of, uh, of many developments, is there anything that, that, that you have a gut feeling about at least, speculative gut feeling that you think, well, it probably is something like this or something like that in terms of uh, particle physics? No, it's not really, I think. Um, I mean, it seems to me that, for example, the, the problem of reconciling the existing structure of quantum field theory with um, what we believe about gravity and so forth is still essentially as severe as it was 25 right. years ago. Right. So let's move to the very large. Yes. Let's talk about yeah. cosmology, because okay. that has changed quite a lot. Yes, it certainly has. Um, obviously, uh, I think the, uh, the most spectacular development over the last 25 years has been the apparent evidence that um, over the last, um, last few eras, as it were, the, um, uh, uh, the expansion of the universe has actually accelerated, quite contrary to what uh, had been expected. Right. And, um, my own personal feeling, and again, it's a field which I'm a complete outsider, so right. I'm just trying, trying to get a, a sort of qualitative sense of, of what's going on. My, my own feeling is that Ideas like dark energy and so forth are really in some sense band-aids which people are trying to stick on what may in the end, I suspect, turn out to be a much more serious problem. I wanted to do the speculative part of the show later on, but I'm, I am, I'm going to make a lateral move towards speculation right now because you threw that out there. Okay. So, so granted that you're speculating and granted mm. that you have no hard evidence for this and mm. you don't even have a, a hard theoretical construct, I would imagine, but no, nonetheless, no, no, no. your gut feeling that this is a band-aid, talk, talk a little bit more about that because that's, that's fascinating to me. What sorts well, of things do you, are, are, are rattling around in your mind when you say that? Well, I think basically that in some sense these ideas, um, the ideas concerning dark energy and so forth, seem to be formulated within the current paradigm of cosmology. And somehow I had this gut feeling that we are in what Thomas Kuhn would have called a pre-revolutionary stage there, that things are going in some sense so wrong that um, we're going to have um, some kind of recognisable scientific revolution in that field, at the end of which it'll turn out not just that not we've been giving the wrong answers, but probably we've been even asking the wrong questions. As I say, I really can't sure. put my finger on it any more than that, but it's, and it's no more than a gut feeling. Um, so let me see if I can, of course you can't put your finger on it anymore, otherwise you'd, you'd, you'd be a lot happier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But let me see if I can uh, explore your level of discomfort, mm. as it were, a little bit mm. more, Do you, and, your, and your speculation. Do you suspect that this is tied to some uh, foundational issues in quantum theory at some level? Do you think that the, these things might be linked or, or is your sense that this is something just completely different? I think my guess would be that it's not linked to basic issues in, in uh, quantum theory because quite frankly um, 
the whole subject, and I'm going to offend a lot of my colleagues at this point. Go for it. No, is, <laughs> let's have controversy. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, my whole attitude um, to the field of, um, of quantum, so-called field of quantum cosmology, is I, I believe it's simply not a subject, because I think we simply have no sufficient evidence to believe that quantum mechanics applies on the scale of the whole universe. Right. In some sense, it's the default option, but we've had a lot of default options in the past, and um, they've turned out to be overthrown at some stage or another. Um, so my feeling is that um, this, the, the, the problems of cosmology, in some sense, don't have much to do with the problems of the foundations of quantum mechanics. Some moments ago, you used the word grandiose, and yeah. as you were talking, I thought... It's hard to imagine there being something more grandiose than this notion of the wave function of the universe. Uh, yes, I mean, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yes. It's the, the, the acme yeah. of, of, of grandiosity. <laughs> Indeed, yes. And that, that yes. seems to be somewhat along the lines of, of what you're saying uh, yes. with respect to quantum cosmology. Yes. I, I mean, I, perhaps I'm just um, an ultra-conservative, but my attitude has always been that you know, physics is an experimental subject and that you um, don't want to push your um, theoretical speculations too far beyond the, the limits of what we can, can currently access experimentally. That's why, I suppose in some sense, that's why I've um, always uh, myself tended to stay within the confines of condensed matter physics or things somewhat related to condensed matter physics because um, I do like, if I have an idea, I do like that there be some hope at least of my experimental colleagues being able to test it sometime during my lifetime. Right. <laughs> it doesn't seem so over the top for, for a physicist to expect that there be some testing of a hypothesis within one's lifetime. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, so let, let, me, let me try to summarize a little bit in terms of where we are. So in terms of the very small, in terms of uh, particle physics and, and the, the, this reductionist view, and I want to talk about reductionism as a concept a little yes. bit later on. Mm. But to, to do the 2013 uh, summarized version of the problems of physics to start with, the standard model seems to be holding up reasonably well. Uh, we seem to have found the Higgs, or at least most mm -hmm. people who seem to know are very much mm -hmm. under the view that this mechanism, which was uh, proposed well, at some level in the 60s, right? With Higgs, Gibble, mm -hmm. and so forth. When did, when did that... Uh, um, let me think. So it's been around an awfully yeah. long time, mm -hmm. uh, and, and now here we are in 2013, and there has been uh, considerable evidence for it. So there are people who speculate about beyond the standard model physics, and maybe mm -hmm. it's maybe there's stuff out there, and maybe there isn't stuff out there, and we'll find out later on. But so far, there have been no revolutions and no, no hugely unexpected developments. Mm -hmm. um, in, uh, in cosmology, the hugely unexpected development was the, this discovery of the acceleration of the universe, and, 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 and perhaps it's worth emphasizing that it's, this is not the expansion of the universe. People were aware that the universe has been expanding for a long time, but this notion of the universe speeding up in its expansion, mm -hmm. this acceleration... Uh, so-called dark energy. You, but you talked about dark matter as a real problem back when you wrote the problems. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, has that been, in your view, uh, has that been something that uh, more people are um, more people are paying attention to now, do you think? Than well, it, I think, uh, um, I, I mean, I suspect even at that time uh, a right. fair amount of attention was being paid sure, to but, it. Um, so, I mean... The situation, again, I think has probably not changed qualitatively in that respect. In terms of your gut feeling, let's get back to that. In terms of your gut feeling that dark energy is a, somehow symptomatic of us moving 
from one paradigm to another, or being mm. in a pre-revolutionary paradigm. Mm. Do you do you does your gut feeling tell you that um, the dark energy is ti- uh, sorry dark matter is tied up uh, within that, or is that something completely different? I'm not sure. I think um, uh, I, I suspect that it's something different, but I again I really don't have um, enough detailed knowledge to. Of course, know, of course. Uh, of course. Uh, I'm asking you. I'm at higher yes, level speculation, mm, so yes. I want to I want to assess um, your level of speculation. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, yes, I no, I, I suspect it's it's a different issue there actually. Okay. So. So much for the, and, and there have been other things. One, one of the things, again, this is perhaps just a reflection of my level of ignorance, but you had talked about um, uh, observationally that people had started to detect supermassive black holes, or worse to that effect, very, very large black holes at the center of our galaxies in, in, in 87. Yeah. I was completely unaware of that. I didn't realize that was going on in 87. I thought that was more of a 90s Actually, thing. Actually, yes, I, I'm slightly... Now, now I'm confused about that. I think perhaps, um, no, I think I think what I actually said in the in the 1987 version was that there was speculation that there might be such a. a that, that must have been. And it. I think now people are rather more confident that that's right. Indeed, mm. but that was that was also quite shocking to me uh, yeah, when I yeah. when I read that. So your your uh, your summary was quite prescient, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe yes. Um, so that that that's another thing that's changed uh, in terms of our level of confidence now. That that there, there seem to be astronomers seem to be quite confident that most galaxies have these these enormous mm. supermassive. Uh, again, I mean, I'm uh, just a sort of perennial skeptic. I I can't help wondering whether the the, the situation isn't that we do, we have essentially one theory there, which is basically Einstein's general relativity, and no serious competitor at the moment. And therefore, it, um, people are, have this automatic tendency to try to fit their, their observations to this one theory. I mean, I've seen this happen numerous times in condensed matter physics, right. and I'm just wondering if astrophysicists are, are quite as immune from it as, as uh, they may think. Likely um, not. Yeah, you know, so, um, you know, what, I mean, I'm a terrible Popperian um, in the sense that um, I take very seriously the necessity to avoid what logicians call the fallacy of affirming the consequent. Uh, it is, you know, basically uh, the, the fallacy is experimental, uh, sorry, theory T predicts experimental consequence E. We see experimental consequence T, uh, E, e therefore, you therefore think theory, theory T is correct, right. because that is a logical fallacy. Right. Now, of course, you know, uh, in the pages of Physical Review, every day this fallacy is committed. <laughs> 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 and the question is why, and why, why do people not get worried about it? And of course, usually, I think the answer is well, uh, this uh, prediction is so striking, and, um, uh, and perhaps in some cases so counterintuitive that it seems very unlikely that any theory other than T would have predicted uh, predicted it. Right. And therefore, we can safely draw the consequence. But uh, you do, you're always making that uh, uh, that unspoken assumption. And it is a fallacy. It is fallacious. Oh, I, I, I mean, mean logically, logically, it's certainly fallacious. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, and so the only question is, how um, you know, how confident are you that uh, no alternative theory could predict? This? Right. Uh, I mean, a, uh, we're not talking right now, I guess, about um, you know, it's metaphysics, but there is one. We're almost um, there. Well, yes, go, go uh, for it. Go okay. No, I mean, uh, I have one particular example um, of this, uh, which is a bit of a bee in my bonnet. I've been thinking about it for the last 25, 30 years, actually. Uh, which is the um, uh, behavior of glasses, uh, just ordinary window glass, that kind of stuff, hmm. at low temperatures. Um, 
quite puzzling, quite mysterious. What, what um, is mysterious? What is really mysterious about it is the following. If I, um, uh, I, I will invite you to give me a black box containing some kind of material. Um, it has to be solid below one degree absolute, but that, that basically includes everything except helium, as far as we know, so that's right. no problem. That's okay. <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, and all I ask uh, you to guarantee is that it is not crystalline and not metallic. Okay. And I will then take a fair bet that I can predict to you the dimensionless absorption of ultrasound waves, sound waves, of a certain frequency, in that material below one, de one degree to within a fact, well, I'm, I'm pessimistic, I say a factor of two, and when I'm confident, I say within 25%, without knowing anything about it, except that it is not crystalline and it is not metallic. Okay, so I know nothing about this. So why, why is that? That seems quite Exactly. Why, why is that? You know, um, now, there is a, um, a theory which has been around now in pretty much 40 years, um, which, uh, which basically says that um, in these materials, because they are disordered, not crystalline, there will always be um, places where a particular atom or a group of atoms has available to it two possible sites, Mm -hmm. And then it can move between them by, say, quantum tunneling and so forth. And then people, uh, th um, that model is very generic. Um, it has lots and lots of free parameters. If you work hard enough for any given material, you can find parameters which will give you the experimental values. Right. But why should they why all sit in that, uh, that range? Yes. Um, and that seems to me a case where basically there's only been this one model sitting there for the last 40 years. And nothing else which has been developed to anything like the same degree of quantitative uh, refinement. And therefore, um, you know, experimentalists simply automatically fit their data to it. And is there only one model because uh, not very many people are concerned about this? Or is there only one model because there's an effective model which seems to be working and... and, and, and well, I think both, really, yes. Um, I, um, certainly, the whole field of glass is, is not a... A particularly glamorous one right now, and it's not a um, major uh, um, major topic of interest in most parts of the world. I'd say it's probably more so in Europe than in, in North America, but uh, it's still not even there. It's not not that popular, but also because I think most people are, um, feel that you know, when you have this um, uh, this standard model. Um, we, it seems there's, right now there's no smoking gun evidence against it, so. Why not use it? Are there other surface? Are there other materials that, that exhibit similar well properties? Um, as I say, this property seems to be pretty much universal among the classes of really amorphous, that is, really glassy materials. Right. Some disordered crystals appear to show much the same behaviour. Um, and metallic glasses show some of these properties, though not all of them, as you'd expect, since they have an extra ingredient, as it were, that is, they have free electrons running around. Okay. So let's let's back up to condensed matter physics in general. Mm, yeah. What's happened there? Let me yeah. let me ask you to back up even further and talk about what you mean by condensed matter physics. Yeah, okay. These words mm, are flowing mm. around here, and yeah, people sure. understand the very small, mm. the very large. You mentioned something about experiments happening within one's lifetime. Let, let, let's talk about what uh, what condensed matter physics is, and then what's happened in the past twenty-five yeah. years. Well, I think basically, um, I mean, there's a narrow definition of condensed matter physics and a much broader one. Um, the narrow definition would um, essentially correspond to what in the old days used to be 
called solid-state physics plus perhaps a little liquid state physics. That is, it's matter under conditions of a high density, reasonable temperature, and, 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 so, and so forth. Um, the broader definition would be basically that condensed matter physics is about any situation where you have um, a large number of, say, microscopic, well, I think not, not even microscopic necessarily, a large number of entities which are strongly interacting in an interesting way. And so, right. uh, so for example, it certainly, with that definition, it would certainly cover um, much of ultra-cold atoms. Um, it um, would, by some definitions at least, co cover cosmology, because uh, after all, we've got a lot of matter <laughs> interacting there. Right. Um, and in some people's definition, it would cover the stock market. Like oh, really? Right, I guess. Well, I mean, you know, quite a few condensed matter physicists have tried to um, uh, to use some of the techniques that they've uh, evolved in, in their original work in condensed matter physics to apply to things like the stock market or um, the, the probability of collapse on the, of, on the internet and, and so on. Right, right. I am not sure if any have met with a tremendous amount of success. Uh, <laughs> that's probably a matter of opinion. I think. <laughs> After all, there are those who would attribute the events of 2008 to the, the, the influx of... <laughs> sure, but if, I mean, first of all, that's not just condensed matter physicists. No, I mean, we have to be fair. No, I mean, there have no, been all sorts of mathematical no, physicists sure. of different, different disciplines. Sure, and, yeah, and, uh, yeah. Presumably, yeah. regulation played a role there as yeah. well. Well, like they're obvious. So, so what has happened in terms of the development? Again, taking this theme of what's changed between mm. now and twenty-five years ago, and and what are the really exciting topics for you? So, we're getting uh, very much in your ballpark in terms of uh, of, of, yes. of, of areas of expertise and and. And knowledge. Uh, I'd, I'd still like you to speculate, but you can speculate yes, with perhaps a little yes, more authority mm, now. Mm, okay. Well, I would say the, uh, to my mind, the really ex most exciting thing uh, that's happened in the general area of condensed matter physics in the last twenty-five years has been the um, uh, the um, connection which is developed between that field and quantum information. Um, when the field of quantum information got uh, uh, kicked off the ground, which I suppose one could place perhaps in the early 90s, um, then uh, I think if most people's assumption, including mine at the time, were that the system, the kind of systems which are going to be really interesting from the point of view of, of, of quantum information, quantum computing and so forth, were going to be um, simple microscopic systems. Um, photons, trapped ions, possibly... Um, uh, well isolated nuclei and so on and so forth. The, um, I think the, the um, really interesting development has been the proposal for topological quantum computing. Hmm. That is that you could, um, you could get around many of the problems uh, which afflict quantum computing done with things like photons or trapped ions or whatever um, by using the um, complicated entangled properties of many body systems. So let me back up uh, a little bit more and ask you to uh, talk a little bit about, uh, so if I'm somebody who doesn't know anything about this and I, I hear quantum information, quantum right, computing, right, I understand yes. quantum, what, mm. what, what are we talking about? What is a quantum computer and, okay. and what is quantum information and why should I particularly okay. care about that? Uh, quantum information is a sort of fairly, fairly broad field which is in some sense um, encompasses several different attempts to apply the um, 
the bizarre features of quantum mechanics for engineering purposes. Now, of course, um, you know, for many decades now, uh, there, there has been application at a certain level, for example, obviously, to things like the transistor and so forth. But one's really talking um, now about things which, in some sense, much more essential features of quantum mechanics, the basic phenomena of, um, of interference, entanglement, and, and so on, and particularly entanglement. The, the fact that, according to quantum mechanics, it appears impossible in certain circumstances um, to, give, to even give a description of two objects which are, maybe they've interacted in the past, but they are separated, um, it appears impo impossible to describe each of these objects adequately in its own right, um, even with some kind of statistical description. Right. So it's much more basic than that. That was the phenomenon which was in some sense, well, I mean, Erwin Schrödinger realized it way back in 1935, um, but didn't, does it, we know exactly what to do with it. Um, John Bell, um, in some sense, put his finger on the way in which one might actually verify, as far as one can ever verify anything in physics, one could, could, um, could, um, uh, could verify that nature does behave um, in a way described by quantum mechanics in the kind of situation where entanglement is important. Right. And it took a quite, quite some time, but, um, but let's say perhaps starting in the mid-80s and then um, really exploding in the mid-90s, um, people realised that there was this... Um, there uh, was the possibility of exploiting these bizarre features of quantum mechanics for real engineering purposes. Um, one of the um, one purpose for which it's already exploited in real life is quantum cryptography, and you know we have this conference going on right now downstairs, right. Um, which is devoted entirely to quantum cryptography. This is a subject which, um, uh, prior to maybe, uh, well, I think the, the, uh, the first paper was in 84, but it did, really didn't come into its own until the mid-90s. Um, it would just not have been a subject. Uh, now, now it's a, a huge sure. subject, and not only academics, but commercial enterprises are interested in it, and so forth. Um, and, and why did it take so long for, you mentioned quantum cryptography, but also the aspects of quantum computing, yes. uh, applied quantum information, if you will, um, is this because the technology wasn't there, or this, or was this because, in your view, there was some reluctance to even uh, develop these ideas in some particular way? I think um, I think from for a long period in the in the middle in the early and middle twentieth century, there was a, um, a sort of taboo on discussing foundational issues. Um, I think I'm correct in saying, I might be wrong on this, but I think I'm correct in saying that between approximately 1935 and 1960, the number of conferences on the foundations of quantum mechanics, which are held in any Anglo-Saxon country, could probably be counted on the figures of two, figures of two hands. <laughs> I could be wrong on that. But, uh, that gives um, you an idea. Yes. Um, uh, uh, somehow it was not respect a respectable thing to, uh, to be doing. And it's interesting that the people who really, uh, at least in my opinion, who really um, made a, a, a decisive change in that situation 
were either not, in some sense, not fully professional physicists, like, say, Amnishimone, or he's got a joint appointment in philosophy, sort of physics, or um, they were physicists, like John Bill, but were doing this in their spare time. Right. <laughs> he's a particle job. physicist. He's an accelerator designer, basically. Right. Um, and he was doing, well, he did a lot of things in spare time, <laughs> including right. some very, very important work in theoretical particle physics, but... Uh, um, was, didn't he also translate Russian as well? I, I thought he... No, I don't oh, think he did. I, um, no. Anyway, sorry. Um, yeah. Um, anyway, um, uh, so it was really these uh, mavericks, as it were, who, um, uh, who, who really ma- made the, the real impact in that field. Of course, eventually people realised the importance of Bell's work, and by the late 70s, um, you know, quite a lot of people were starting to get interested in it. When were the Asper experiments? They were 82 or something? Let's see. The, um, okay, the, the first experiments on the um, what was nowadays normally called the EPR Bell situation were um, by Friedman Plaza in right. 1972, eight years after Bell's original work. Asper's experiments were in the early 80s. Right. And then there's a series of, of, of subsequent experiments uh, Anton Salinger, Nicolas Gisain, and various other people. Right. Um, but there was a sociological taboo with this idea <laughs> yeah. that mm-hmm. for some for some reason, and we people have talked about this this notion that Bohr had it figured out, and nobody really wanted to go and actually right. understand yes. what Bohr That's said, right. which mm-hmm. is a nightmare in and of itself, or or or, <laughs> or, 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 or what have you, or finding yes. that mm-hmm. you'll go down the drain, or or or, or, or the words to this effect. But these issues were somehow ignored until we moved towards towards the mid to mid to late eighties, the nineties, the yeah. Yes. Uh, well, actually, it was later than that, really, that it became respectable. And I can only tell you one story in, in, in that respect. Um, when I, um, I mean, I'd been interested in the foundations of quantum mechanics for quite some time. And when I came to, moved permanently to the U.S. in 1983, I continued with that work and published um, a, a number of papers in that area. Around, sometime around the 2000 or shortly thereafter, um, a group of us at Illinois wanted to uh, make an application to the National Science Foundation for work which had some bearing on the foundations of quantum mechanics and so forth. And so we had to submit the usual documentation. And one of the headings was that uh, one of the um, pieces of information we were asked to supply was, um, uh, uh, quote, any papers in the area, which the general area of the proposal, which have been um, published with NSF support. I, during my time at Illinois, between 1983 and 2000 or so, I published probably 20 papers in that area. However, I'm not even bothered to try to get NSF support <laughs> for them because I thought it was so unfashionable. <laughs> so the pendulum has swung. Right. So let me get, so I, I, I would like to ask a few questions about quantum computing. Okay, uh, yes. As well, but uh, let me put that to, us, to, uh, to the side for just one moment because uh, you began this, this aspect of the conversation by saying that's one thing which has really changed in yes. uh, a, a principal aspect of condensed matter physics. Have there been other uh, important and, and influential developments in condensed matter physics over the past 25 years or so? I would say nothing that really sort of springs immediately into my mind. Um, the... Um, 
one thing, one thing which has been reverberating on and on in that period, but which was in fact discovered um, briefly, uh, shortly before um, 1986 or 1987, is the fractional quantum Hall effect. Right. Which certainly, I think, is. I think one could say, in some sense, it's the most sophisticated um, problem in condensed metaphysics of which we can claim at least to have some kind of reasonable quantitative understanding. Whether we have a complete understanding or not is still not entirely clear, but um, at least we can do a certain amount on it, and we can make certain theoretical predictions which experiment does seem to bear out, and so forth. Um, so let, let me pick up on that and ask you a little bit more about what it means to really understand something. Yeah. What, what an explanation is uh, in, in physics. Yeah. And maybe this sounds like an obvious question. Well, you know something when you have a theory, and you go into the lab, and you test it, and the theory works. But th there are many aspects of this which are quite a bit deeper, and you go into some of them in, in, uh, in, in your book. Yes. Um, I mean, I think in some sense, I would say we understand, or at least convince ourselves, that we understand a um, particular phenomenon in physics, a particular um, set of experiments, say, if we can um, fit them into a general gestalt theory. Now, of course, the gestalt can be extremely broad. It can be something that does like, um, say, Newton's laws. Um, it can be something much more specific, um, say, uh, specific theories of um, how particular solids are uh, constructed, what their energy, electron Energy, energy bands alike, and so on and so forth. But yeah. we need to be able to relate that phenomenon to other things which we have observed in, in physics, I think. Um, now, of course, one could probe deeper than that and ask, OK, um, let's take something like um, Newton's laws themselves. What does it mean to say we understand those? Do we, does it even make sense to ask whether we understand them or not, or do we just simply have to accept them as a fact of life. Here they are. This is where we start with this is axiomatic. Right. That's right. Um, now, this is, actually, this is a very interesting question in uh, connection with the foundations of quantum mechanics, because um, we have the formalism of quantum mechanics, which has now been around for getting on for 100 years. Um, we can apply it, um, and at least in most of the areas in which we try to apply it, it, uh, it seems to work pretty well. Um, no evidence right now that it uh, it fails at any particular point. But why? You know, why do, isn't uh, why does nature work that way? Um, and one uh, very interesting um, uh, subfield of the foundations of quantum mechanics has been the attempt to, in some sense, try to derive quantum mechanics from more elementary basic postulates. Uh, the kind of postulates which um, uh, people use are. Uh, for example, the principle of um, non, the inability to transmit information um, faster than the speed of light will allow, basic principles of special relativity and so forth. And uh, principles, let's say, of the continuity of the description of the state, and so on. Hmm. And um, I think that's a very interesting um, enterprise, though, frankly, even if it succeeds, it won't make necessarily make me any more confident that quantum mechanics is the whole truth about the world. And then, of course, uh, even if it were to succeed, you would uh, presumably have the same problems with, with those well, principles yes. and those, those postulates. Yes, but at um, least you'd have fewer of them. Yes. 
I mean, my experience with small children is, is, is that they're always asking why. <laughs> when you tell them, they say, why again? And eventually you have to just throw up your hands and say, it's just like that. <laughs> um, it, it, as you were talking, it made me, made me think of something else that you had written in the, in the Problems of Physics, which I thought was uh, uh, a very interesting insight. Um, you, you may or may not remember this, but er, earlier in the book, you you speculate that had people in the 19th century had the computational power, uh, or perhaps even in the 18th century, yeah, but certainly in the 19th century, had the computational power that we have now, they would have been cranking away at all of um, Newtonian mechanics and yes. so forth. And they wouldn't have developed some of the mathematical analytic techniques, in particular the, the principle of least action and so forth, yes, which paved right. the way towards yeah. the eventual, um, uh, how shall I say this, re rejigging or, or turning yes. that people mm -hmm. had to do yeah. once once quantum mechanics came into vogue. And the transition yes. from classical mechanics to quantum mechanics would have been harder had they had better computational machines. I think that's true. Yes, in, yes. In yes. Those days. That's a fascinating idea. That, yes. that uh, to some extent, sitting back and calculating away. Uh, it impedes one to develop uh, the appropriate mental constructs which might yeah. actually be able to mm. be used later on. Right, yes. That's why I'm not myself um, a tremendous fan of computational physics. <laughs> so, um, I mean, obviously there are plenty of places where it's uh, not only useful but probably essential, but, um, uh, but I slightly worry about it taking over more and more of physics. Right. I mean, let's talk a little bit about what it means to be fundamental. And mm. this is a word which gets thrown around an, yes. an awful lot. Mm. Um, and I had to, uh, in, in a previous life, as you know, I, I had to hold forth uh, more often than not without knowing the slightest bit about what I was, uh, of what I was, I was talking about, uh, on, on what it means to be foundational, and yes. fundamental, and yes. throws these words around all the time. Yes. This is fundamental. That's not fundamental. Yes. This is really elemental. And, and and there's a long history of uh, of people making grandiose. There's that word again. Making grandiose statements about uh, what it is to be foundational. And sometimes condensed matter physics winds up on the short end of the stick. I think was it mm -hmm. Murray Gell-Mann who called it squalid state physics? <laughs> I think that's right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and, and so uh, give, give me a sense as to what your views are there. I think, um, well, um, I would, um, uh, perhaps I can be best define what I regard as in some sense fundamental by, by, by what it excludes. And I think what it excludes is the, the kind of operation, which is in fact very common, and you know, all of us, including me, do it all the time, um, where one um, starts off um, from a set of assumptions or equations and so forth, which one, at least for the purposes of the, of the calculation, is not going to challenge, and um, simply tries to uh, derive um, well, I say derive, that's perhaps not quite a good word to use. One tries to infer certain consequences of these, these basic assumptions. Um, for example, I mean, a typical example might be um, uh, that, I don't know, you have... Uh, 
Well, uh, it's, it's what, for example, I think it's fair to say a lot of electronic band structure work is about. You start off with um, basically Schrodinger's equation for a set of 10 to the 23 atoms and whatever, right. and you, um, you, uh, you try to make approximations to them. And now, again, it's not obvious that some of this is not what I would call fundamental or foundational because in the process of making those approximations, you may have to, at some stage, introduce um, new concepts. And to the extent that you really are inter introducing new concepts, which can't be totally simply explained away in terms of the existing ones, then I think you are, to an extent, doing fun uh, fundamental work. So I think a very good example of what I would call foundational or fundamental work in condensed matter physics is the work of Lev Landau. Um, in particular, his beautiful work on uh, superfluid helium where he introduced the, uh, the idea of, of elementary excitations, the idea of a normal component and a superfluid component, and various other things. These were not things which you could actually um, define rigorously in terms of a, a, a simple picture of 10 to the 23 atoms or whatever. Right. And, uh, and how, how much of this notion of, of being foundational is tied up to an intuitive sense of reductionism, uh, this, this notion that you, the physicists have in their mother's milk, right? Uh, yeah. you, you take something apart, you look exactly. for its constituent exactly. components, yes. and you yes. keep taking it apart, and then you get to the nub of it, and, and you yeah, get to the core right. of it. But in some ways, uh, one doesn't have to be a physicist or a scientist. In some ways, we know that that's just not the answer to to all of our uh, all of our questions about the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, we know that if we if if we take ourselves apart, we eventually get to these subatomic particles, and we mm -hmm. know that if we take this table apart, we also get to subatomic particles, and we know there's a fundamental difference between ourselves and <laughs> this table, <laughs> namely, namely, uh, yeah. well, maybe some people, but but uh, but that we're alive and, mm -hmm. and the table isn't, and that's just not encapsulated at all yeah. in, mm -hmm. in this. So even yeah. at, a, at a very very coarse grain level, yes. very intuitive yeah. level. We all realize that reductionism has its difficulties, yeah. but of course you don't have to go that far. There are all sorts no. of levels of emergent structure that happen. Yeah, right. So, so um, I guess I should end with a question at some point. See, I, I keep doing this. I, I, I stop ending with a question. Um, but how, how much do you think this 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 notion of um, being fundamental is? Uh, is linked to, to the spirit of reductionism. And, and, and should we be doing anything different about that? Should we be telling people from an earlier age uh, so that they have greater appreciation for... Well, um, as, a, as a professional condensed matter theorist, yes, I think we should. Um, uh, that is, I think the, um, the instinctive view, as you say, that um, you understand how things work by taking them apart and so forth. First of all, I think it's... In some sense, perhaps an implicitly rather anthropocentric kind of view. I mean, we, you know, you've got a, a radio or a bicycle or whatever, and sure enough, uh, perhaps a, a bicycle perhaps is obvious, but in the case of the radio, you um, you might, if you're curious, uh, unscrew the back and take it, take it, the various bits out and, and right. try to figure out how it works. Right. That may be misleading because that radio has been put together by human beings. <laughs> Not so obvious that this is going to work on, on the, the objects which nature sure. creates. It wasn't spontaneously but, assembled. Somehow. No. But even if you accept that, um, I mean, I frankly just do not see why um, the study of the microscopic components of a, uh, a macroscopic object is, is more fundamental than the study of how these interact in subtle ways when they're all put together. Uh, this is the kind of point, I think, which people like um, 
uh, you know, Prigogine and Phil Anderson and so forth and Bob Laughlin have tried to make. Right. Um, personally, I'd go even further. And this is a very uh, radical and um, um, minority point of view, I think. But I would claim that um, there's a real possibility that there may actually be laws of physics which only come in at the level of, of, of uh, subtle, complicated, macroscopic objects. In other words, um, I think my difference with people like Prigogine, um, Anderson, Laughlin, so forth, uh, would go something like this. Okay, we all agree that um, it, uh, even um, you know quite um, uh, quite inanimate phenomena of various kinds can't be, in practice, um, reasonably account uh, reasonably. Um, explain, in any meaningful sense of the word explain, by um, simply writing down the, uh, the Newton's laws or Schrodinger equation the for temperature particles. The completely reductionist approach for every um, atom and so forth. Yes, but at least I think um, people like um, Anderson Laughlin and company would say, but at least um, uh, this is consistent with, uh, the phenomenon is consistent with uh, the speculation or the conjecture that Schrodinger's equation does work. These. I mean, it may not be a very, very useful piece of knowledge, but it's at least um, right. something which is consistent. I would go further than that and say, I would not be totally surprised if there are actually new laws of physics which come in at um, some level of macroscopicity or complexity or whatever, um, which mean, in crudely speaking, that quantum mechanics is not the whole truth about the world. So, so let me be devil's advocate and explore this a little mm -hmm. bit here, mm -hmm. and, and again, just to assuage, uh, because I know you're on camera and you're a professional physicist with a reputation and you're worried that you'll say all sorts of things. People might assume it's the truth. And you're, we're speculating. You're speculating and I'm trying to tease out your yes. level of speculation. Yes. But, but it's fascinating to me, so I'd like to so indulge me for a moment in doing so. So, so here I am as the, as the hardcore reductionist. And I okay. say, fine, you say that there are, we, we, we have some confidence in laws over here. Yeah. And you say that at some level of macroscopicity or, or some some level of uh, bigness, organizational <laughs> way, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, new laws kick in. Yes. And I would say, well, then uh, it seems to me I would have to have some sort of uh, mechanism for that. I would have to have some sort of structure. I would have to have, maybe have some sort of meta structure that says when when do I oh, yeah. when do okay. I hit this mm -hmm. level? And yes. What's causing that to kick in? Yes. And, and how yeah. do I know that? And, yeah. and so, how would you respond to that? I think I'd respond to it with a sort of analogy. Um, imagine that we project ourselves back into the year, um, say, eighteen seventy thereabouts. Imagine that I'm a time traveller coming back um, from the um, year 2013, and I meet a group of physicists from the year 1870, and I assure them that um, at some point, um, and well, let me just say for the moment, at some point, as you go down in scale from the level of the ordinary macroscopic world towards the atomic world, the laws of mechanics, um, uh, I, of course I would now say classical mechanics, but they would have said mechanics. Sure. <laughs> the laws of mechanics are going to change radically and fundamentally. And, well, they would um, look at me somewhat perplexed and they would say, um, okay, but how, um, you know, what's going to, after all, mechanics has no scale in it. So, um, 
And I'd say, well, sorry, mate. <laughs> Actually, according to modern information, it is a scale. <laughs> you could not, not have been reasonable for them to guess it at right. the time, but it's there. <laughs> so there is this Planck's constant. There yes. is there is mm. this. Uh, there is this scale, and, they, and one couldn't have known. That's that's actually that's yeah. a, that's a good argument. Um, I mean, it's it's a defensive argument insofar as you're not mm -hmm. really justifying it, because of course the reason mm -hmm. you're invoking your argument is to is to, I think, mm -hmm. is to give some understanding of where this scale comes from to begin with, right? I mean, yeah. you're you're looking to rescue well, quantum mechanics. I mean, your your whole motivation yes. presumably at some level is to. Am I right here? And what, what do you understand what I'm saying, or am I being too opaque? I would like. Uh, I mean, I would speculate and, uh, in some sense, hope that even after the next major revolution, if there is one in, in physics, um, we'll still be able to go on using quantum mechanics for uh, the purposes of describing phenomena at the atomic level, just as sure. we now still go on using Newtonian mechanics to describe planetary motion. Right. Uh, nothing's gone wrong with that. Um, uh, but... Um, we'll be in a different regime at some, at some yeah, point. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'm, this is going off slightly on a tangent, but I think, um, again, uh, my reasons for this are not totally arbitrary. My reasons thinking so. Again, I'll make a, a historical analogy. Project yourself now, not back to 1870, but 1875. Um, in, now, what's, what's special about 1875? In 1875, at least as far as I know, there was no real evidence in atomic physics or, or, or optics or anything of the kind of a failure of um, of uh, mechanics, classical mechanics, classical electromagnetic theory at the experimental level. Um, however, in that year, Gibbs published a paper which included the so-called Gibbs paradox. This is a paradox um, which has to do with the mixing of um, two different bodies of um, of the same gas. Um, there's a uh, paradox concerning the entropy of mixing of that. So, now, Gibbs, um, it looks as if Gibbs himself and his contemporaries thought of this as a sort of minor accounting problem. Maybe I should uh, ask you mm, again, mm. Uh, to, sorry to interrupt, but to, to just give a basic, yeah. a, a basic summary of, of the Gibbs paradox. Okay, so, um, uh, so uh, crudely speaking, you, have, um, you can think of mixing uh, two bodies of, of, of gas, and um, if, if these are different gases, then all the consequences that you get out concerning the, um, the uh, entropy of the, the mixed state right. relative to the original one uh, seem sensible. Right. Um, if you do it for two bodies of identical gas, then assuming that you... Now, here, here's the, the crux. Um, if you assume that you can actually, as it were, put markers on the gas which started here, the gas which started here, then you appear to get into various difficulties, the technical difficulties concerning the, uh, the so-called extensivity, the dependence of the entropy on volume and so forth. Yeah. Um, but if you don't? If you, well, I mean, if you, uh, it turns out in the, at the end of the day that if you don't, then the paradoxes go away. Right. But that would have been, I think, uh, to people in Gibbs' day, the idea that you couldn't just uh, put a mark on a particular atom or whatever would have seemed very weird and sure. anomalous. So if they'd actually taken, um, I, I think one can claim, claim with the virtue of hindsight, if Gibbs and his contemporaries had taken that, um, that paradox seriously, they would have reached the conclusion that at some scale, as you go down from the level of the macroscopic to the level of the atom, um, mechanics, 
classical mechanics is going to break down in some way. They would not have been able to infer at what point it would break down. Even less would they have been able to infer in what way it would break down. Right. But that it would break down is something that I think, in retrospect, they could have inferred. So this would this was a clue, yes. uh, as it were, that that a that a sufficiently astute mind could have could have recognized and interpreted as 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 a as a real problem or as, yes. as a concrete indicator of, of right. the way in yes. which things would have to be restructured. Well, I'm not sure about the way that they have to be restructured, but the fact that they would have to be right, okay. restructured, <laughs> yes. And I think we're in the same position with quantum mechanics today. Um, I do take the quantum mechanics, um, the quantum measurement paradox, or the Schrodinger's cat paradox, sufficiently seriously to believe that. But again, we can't reasonably um, infer the way, uh, the point at which quantum mechanics is going to break down. Still less can we infer the way in which it's going to break down, but that it's going to break down. I think we can infer. So I'd very much like to get to that That's, uh, right after I ask this question. Um, you talked about quantum computing right. and, and mm. uh, the, the way in which, as a principal aspect um, of, the, of the development of the change in condensed matter physics with the panoply of different approaches and different devices and, and, and so forth, um, I know some people who are concerned about the foundations of quantum theory uh, you know more, but I know I know a, a good many, and, and mm -hmm. the ones I know you know as well, mm -hmm. and you probably know even who I mean when I'm going to refer to these people. But there are some people who are of the view that the foundations of quantum theory is extremely important. Mm -hmm. The foundations of quantum theory uh, is something that that is uh, that has been swept under the rug for a very long period of mm -hmm. time. It needs to be addressed, and we need to fix it. But that quantum computing, as it were, is is not something which is going to shed any particular light on this whatsoever. Yeah. That this is mm. engineering, and it's fine, just like yes. developing transistors mm. and doing all the rest yeah. of this. That's mm. all fine and good, mm. and and important, and important to the development of our GDP and so forth. But mm. if I'm a foundational physicist, don't tell me that this is actually going to 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 address any core foundational issue of uh, of the foundations of quantum mm. theory mm. because it's not. Mm. How would you respond to that? Well, I think that depends um, on. Whether, if, as people go to uh, try to devise um, uh, realistic um, versions of quantum computing, um, whether it works as it were or not, um, if, um, if indeed, uh, as people go to more and more entangled states, perhaps more and more macroscopic qubits, for example, flux qubits and so forth. Um, if everything still works fine according to the basic prescriptions of quantum mechanics, then I think we will not have learned anything. The ex more exciting speculation is that as we go in this direction, it's, it's one of the many directions in which we might, might, might try to go, um, but it's one frontier uh, along which we can explore the, the continued validity of, of quantum mechanics. And it just could be that um, there are um, that because of the, uh, let's say, the particular entanglement properties of some of these very sophisticated states we'll need, that may be the trigger for quantum mechanics to break down. I mean, I'd put a fairly small probability on that right now, but it could happen. In that case, we'd have learned a lot. Right. So it's not so much that by the theoretical constructs that, that, we're, that we're developing within a, a quantum computational framework, but more just by playing, by pushing, by developing, we may, we may we stumble may, upon something. We may. Um, but I stress the may. Um, 
a phrase which I've encountered many, many times when review proposals and so forth is that by doing this or that experiment, which, uh, for example, works with um, more and more um, entangled photon states or larger flux qubits or whatever, we will be exploring the boundary between the quantum and the classical. I say nonsense. <laughs> if it works, if it you, works according to the prescriptions of quantum mechanics, you learn nothing. Right. <laughs> if it breaks down, you learn a huge effect. <laughs> right. Um, so, so people are listening, uh, I can imagine, to you talking about this. And if you don't have a technical background, you say, here's this Professor Leggett. He's an eminent physicist. He's clearly had a distinguished research career. He's won a Nobel Prize. He's upset about this thing called the foundations of quantum theory. There are problems that are bothering him. And yet, at the same time, I'm hearing that the theory works. Mm -hmm. The theory is yeah. predicting uh, what it should be predicting. Yeah. Uh, we have these sets of algorithms that, are, that, are, uh, that we're able to turn the crank and we're able to say, yes, things should work like this, this, and the other. And they, and they do, as you just said with your example of the granting council. Um, uh, most of the time, in fact, hitherto all of the time, <laughs> people are predicting something, and lo and behold, mm -hmm. that's, that's basically what happens. Um, so, so what's bothering you exactly? Let's talk, about, let's talk about what you mean by the foundations of quantum theory and, and well, try to drill down into, into why okay. you're so restless about this. Okay, the, what really worries me is Schrodinger's cat. I'm less concerned, in some sense, with the whole area of the EPR bill. Um, uh, set up, except insofar as that's related to Schrodinger's cat. And okay. I guess it is at a deep level. But uh, so tell us, uh, tell us uh, in your words what Schrodinger's cat is, and, and sure, we yeah. can talk about that. Um, if you okay, Schrodinger's original example, um, you have um, some kind of um, microscopic system. In his case, it was a radioactive device, but we might, for example, think of a, a photon which can have. Um, uh, well, classically speaking, it can have vertical polarization or horizontal polarization. If it has a vertical polarization, then um, it will pass a appropriate, appropriately set polarizer. It has the horizontal one to be rejected. Right. Um, suppose that the photon is rejected, then nothing much is going to change in the world. Suppose it's um, it's transmitted. Then we set up a, a, a complicated device, a hellish device, as Schrodinger called it, behind the, um, uh, the, uh, the polarizer, which um, will trigger various electronics, etc., etc. And as a result of this, a cat which is um, uh, sitting innocently inside a closed box will be killed. Um, okay, so far so good. I mean, if the if we fire in a uh, if the first photon we fire in definitely has horizontal polarization, the cat will live. If the photon definitely has vertical polarization, the cat will die. However, unfortunately, quantum mechanics allows the possibility that we have a so-called quantum superposition of, of, of um, vertical and horizontal polarization. And we can show by various subsidiary experiments that that is not simply an equivalent to what we call a mixture of these two. That is, it's not the case that the photon was definitely vertical with some probability and horizontal with a different probability. Right. You could send a really, single photon. A single photon, right. yep. Right. Um, so suppose we send this sort of 45 degree polarized photon into the apparatus. What does quantum mechanics tell us is, is then going to be the future state of the universe? Well, quantum mechanics is, by its construction, a strictly linear theory. So the, if the initial state was a quantum superposition of this and this, 
And the final state of the universe is going to be a quantum superposition of a state which, uh, in which the cat is dead and one in which she's alive. Um, and this is something, this, this description is something in some sense which we find very difficult to interpret. Um, at the microscopic level, there are all sorts of subsidiary experiments we can do right. to convince ourselves that if uh, that the superposition is not equivalent to either this or this. Right. It's more, more sophisticated than that. At the macroscopic level, on the other hand, we're all used to uh, taking the lid off the box, or if we could do the experiment, and see the, the cat being either dead or alive. Perhaps it's a little more intuitive if we take the famous two-slit experiment, where you have an right. electron which has available to it two paths right. um, going through different slits, and then we do an interference experiment. Right. Um, I would prefer, in that situation, I prefer not to make any positive statements. Uh, so it didn't, it didn't go through both? Uh, it didn't go through both, it didn't go right. through neither. What, right. But I can make the negative statement that is not correct to say that it, it either, that each individual electron either went through slit A or through slit B. Right. That's one thing I can't say. Right. Okay, now, now you see, but I get, this is the point which I think a whole lot of the whole literature on decoherence seems to me to miss. Decoherence is a technical uh, trick for pretending to have solved the, the measurement problem. Um, the formulas of quantum mechanics hasn't changed a whit as we go from the description it gives of the photon to the description it gives of the cat. Right. Um, if we refuse to make a particular interpretation at the microscopic level, we have no business reintroducing that interpretation at the macroscopic level. Now, okay, the evidence uh, that um, uh, that I couldn't make this statement. At the, uh, of course, it was there at the microscopic level in the form of interference patterns. Right. It has gone away. Everyone agrees that by the level of the cat, it's that, that in practice, that, that evidence has gone away. But does the fact that the evidence against a particular interpretation of the formalism has gone away by the time we get to the cat mean that we can uh, freely reintroduce that interpretation? I say no. If, you, uh, if you, you decide that a particular interpretation of the general formalism is not valid at the micro level, then... What works for the photon has to work for the cat. Yeah, and of course that was Schrodinger's whole point, is, yeah, is, to, is to ramp it up to a level of absurdity. We're happy yeah, with, right. with, yes. with rejecting, we're happy with talking about photons in this particular way, or, or not talking about photons yeah. in this particular yeah. way, as, as you say. Uh, but we consider it absurd to be talking about cats. Right. Mm. Uh, yeah. and, and at some level, I mean, this gets back to what you were saying earlier. If at some level new rules come into play, yes. well, then where where does that happen, and how does right, that happen? Exactly. Yes. And, and, yes. and so forth. And when I first started thinking seriously about this way back around 1980, I really quite seriously hoped that by the time you got to the level of the flux, so-called flux qubit, where the two states you're talking about are different in the behavior of something like, uh, well, it depends how you count, but let's say 10 billion electrons. Um, then I was rather hoping that by that time something else might have happened. Right now, uh, it looks like quantum mechanics is working fine at that level. And, and, and isn't there, but isn't there another issue from internal consistency, something which has always bothered me, which is not only the language in which you used to describe this, mm. um, but also the, the, the theoretical framework. And the theoretical framework incorporates this notion of a measurement. And this notion of a measurement, it seems to me, is not a terribly well-defined notion yes, and, and necessarily yeah. extends outside of the system. I mean, for, for a lot of people, that's 
that's yet another problem with quantum cosmology we talked about yeah, earlier. Yeah, if you have a well, wave function, well, who's going to be measuring this exactly. wave function? Yeah. And what, what does that even mean to, to, yeah. to some extent? But, but just to back up, this idea that you have this, this thing, this state vector or this wave function, uh, which is some description of the system or at least some description of not what the system is or, or whatever, however yeah. one, wants to, one wants to define <laughs> it. Do, yeah. mm -hmm. and, and, and then there's this sense of how you use that and how you interpret that yeah. and how you extract yeah. information from yeah. it. And it seems to me that there is, an at least from my perspective, there's an additional problem. Not only are we uncertain what that actually means, but to extract information structurally, we have to do something which is outside of the, the, the formation yeah. of our theory. Yeah. Is that, do you look at it that way? Do you, do you think that, that bothers me too, or, or is that somehow part and parcel of I think of it's really business? part of the, the original paradox, yes. Okay. The, the fact that we are, as human beings, we are conscious of seeing definite outcomes. In fact, we really can't even imagine what it would be like not to see a definite outcome. Right. Whereas the formulas of quantum mechanics in some sense tells us that we shouldn't be. Right. So when we last spoke some time ago, you mentioned that, uh, again with, with caveats to spare, you, you mentioned that one of the things that, that you had been thinking of or speculating about was how issues related to the arrow of time mm, yeah. might somehow be associated with some of these foundational issues in quantum theory. So, uh, so I, I'd like to I'd like you to indulge me yet again okay. and, and speculate a little okay. bit. But before before you do, we've talked about foundational issues in quantum theory, or at least some aspects of the framework. Uh, tell me a little bit about uh, your your beliefs of issues with the era of time, and then and then see if you can put things together. Okay. Well, um, of course, the you know the issue of the era of time has been around a long time, and lots and lots of people have thought about it, and. Um, I th one thing I think I'm relatively happy with, which is in some sense part of the um, uh, part, 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 part of the common wisdom on the subject, is that if you're going to look for an ultimate explanation of the error of time, in the end it has to go back to cosmology. Um, in other words, um, uh, we can, in some sense, um, the most general aspect of the error of time of which we're conscious in everyday life can be summed up in the second law of thermodynamics, that disorder tends to increase as a function of time. And given that, given that general principle, I think it's not so difficult to um, extract particular applications, for example, to the fact that um, one can uh, remember the past and affect the future and so forth. At least it's, uh, I mean, I'm not saying I can do it, and I think people have, have perhaps tend to go overboard in saying they know how to do it, but at least uh, I can't see any obvious and simple objections to, to do it. It seems right. sort of reasonable. Right. Um, however, um, how are we going to justify um, the thermodynamic error of time? Well, I mean, one, one possibility would simply say, well, you know, that's just the way it is. Yeah. Um, entropy uh, was uh, low in the past and um, is increasing as we go into the future and so forth. And that's just a fact of life. Um, if you don't like that, then I think the obvious uh, solution is to look at cosmology and say, um, well, um, it has to do with the fact that um, the universe is expanding from the hot Big Bang. And the entropy was very low at the Hot Big Bang. Why? Well, of course, that's a huge question. Right. Um, uh, and people, you know, all the heavyweights in the field have uh, sort of tangled with that and fought over it. So, I mean, I'm not uh, going to necessarily try to get into that. But 
even if we got that, let's just suppose that that problem is solved. Um, I think you still have a, a problem with the following question. Given that the overall arrow of time is in the direction we all know and love, is it possible that there are, as it were, fluctuations in which, that is, that in small, and here I really am talking right off the top of my head, um, the small regions of space-time in which, um, in some sense, the normal arrow of time would be reversed, and in particular, in which one could legitimately ascribe the cause of an event to what's going to happen in the future, rather than what's happened in the past. But these are, these are small fluctuations, so it would just happen on a, on a very short... Uh... Well, yes, for the moment at least, let's... Yes. Okay. One, um, one possible reason for taking that speculation slightly more seriously than one might otherwise, I think, is the EPL bill. Um, uh, experiments. The EPL Bell experiments, because this is something going off a slight tangent, but I think it's still interesting. Sure. Um, if you don't look at quantum mechanics, I mean, in some sense, the you can look at the the raw experimental outputs of these experiments without ever mentioning quantum mechanics, um, and just look at what the the outcome of these experiments tell you. They tell you that you've got to reject at least one of three things which, at least in the ordinary everyday life, we know and love. Um, everyday life plus physics. Um, <laughs> uh, one, is, um, one is indeed our normal concepts about the arrow of time, that um, in some sense we can remember the past, uh, affect the future, that, that events in the future cannot causally affect what is happening right. in the present, etc. The second is um, locality in the technical sense of special relativity. Okay, not in everyday life, but physicists really, really love that principle. <laughs> um, and the third, well, you can put it in various forms, but a way I like to put it is macroscopic counterfactual definiteness. The idea that um, you can assign truth values to statements which are conditional on unperformed conditions. Uh, we do this all the time in everyday life. Okay, um, we, may, we, we say, I say to you, um, had I got up five minutes earlier this morning, I would have caught the bus. You don't question that's a meaningful statement, I think. But is the, that not linked to the sense of causality? Is, is there not some overlap to that? No, I don't think so, is there? I mean, um, I'm not saying that the fact that I got up um, earlier or later had any causal relation to, well, I suppose it has a, certainly didn't have a causal relation as to when the bus would come. Right. Um, <laughs> Uh, it, um, <laughs> well, it, it's a condition. I mean, right. in that sense, yes, I, I guess there is a relation. But, you know. uh, but it is, uh, my point is that we're making, you know, we, not only are these, we, we make these counterfactual statements and think of them as meaningful in, um, in common everyday life, the legal system absolutely hinges on these, uh, these counterfactual conditionals. I mean, we really, these, um, say these counterfactual conditionals and all around us. I mean, in the, the prosecuting counsel says, that says to the jury, had the accused not pushed his victim down the stairs, she would still be alive today. Right. And the jury has to make a decision on whether they believe that that statement is correct, right or wrong. So they certainly take it as a factual statement. Right. Right. So there are these, so, so getting back, so there are these, these three aspects. That's right. These three, three, three sort of common sense you know, right. assumptions, right. one of which has to go. Right. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm not happy with throwing away any of these, but, uh, um, but I think we should at least think about the possibility of throwing away our normal assumptions about the 
error of time, which would of course allow us, the point about that is that it would allow us to regard the actual outcome of the measurement at the two ends of the lab as in some sense determining the initial state of the pairs which were emitted, even though it occurred later in time. I mean, the normal formulation, uh, very crudely, if we go back to John Bell's original argument, right, right. Um, I mean, which has been you know, generalised a lot since then, but um, basically the idea is that you have some distribution of parameters which, which describe the pairs of photons which are emitted from the source, right. and crucially, this, this distribution cannot depend on the setting of the instruments I'm going to use to, to measure all them. And the reason which one would normally give for that um, has indeed to do with the fact that, well, I could choose the, um, the setting at the very last moment, as right. Aspe and others did in their right. experiments. Um, therefore, it's in the, in the future light cone, technically. It's in the future of um, the, uh, the event of emission. Therefore, can't affect it. If you were to reject the normal assumption about the error of time, then that would go. You could say that the, the setting of the instruments and or the outcome of the measurements could... Uh, could actually, as it would come in from the future, and affect that distribution. Okay, so I understand how um, changing the arrow of time will affect my sense of causality. I understand yes. how sen affecting my sense of causality will will give me new light on the EPR experiments, and uh, not having to think that, in terms of the priority, the logical priority of polarizers being set as yes. opposed to mm. when the photons mm. go out. Um, and I understand the notion of quantum fluctuation loosely. Yeah. Um, but it seems to me what you would need to be doing is you would need to be saying something more sweeping about the arrow of time. This is happening all the time. I can go into the, I can do well, these okay, labs that's, yes, all yeah. the time and I can do that's these experiments right, yeah. and lo and behold, yeah. I'm happening over and over and over again. It's not once or twice in a millennium or something like that that yeah, I'm getting yeah. this. I'm ha this is happening all the time. So why is, how does quantum fluctuations explain why that's why that would be happening consistently? Well, actually, I think it well, probably, from my point of view, one shouldn't even mention quantum fluctuations in this context. Right, of because, course, because you're begging you know, the question. Sorry. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I mean, this is a statement about what the raw experimental um, right. uh, data to tell you. So okay. Things. Now, I mean, if one, I think, if one is a um, uh, uh, probably I, I may be insulting them, but I think that most of the younger generation of quantum information specialists these days would probably react to that by saying, well, you know, what's the point? Um, quantum mechanics gives us a, a consistent and apparently experimentally accurate description of what's going on. So why even bother to, to raise these questions? Right. But that's a different question than the one I asked. I mean, uh, yes. <laughs> so how... <laughs> yeah. So how, how is it... Um, uh, if if the arrow of time can go, let, let me ask yeah. it. Let me ask it again. If the arrow of time can go backwards, if you can yes. change the arrow of yes. time, um, uh, I understand how uh, that changes everything in terms of my yes. interpretation. Yeah. But we don't see the arrow. I can, and, and yeah. I'm willing to believe that every so often, somehow, in some yeah. small context, the arrow of yeah. time can go backwards. Yeah. But when I do these experiments, yeah. um, everything else in my life, the arrow of time seems to be going forwards. Right. So. Well, so. maybe that's because you're a macroscopic being, and um, you know the uh, you think about. I mean, this is completely off the top of my head, but um, um, uh, but think about the time scales involved here. Um, okay, so uh, I guess in the um, in the most recent uh, the Guinness Book of Records set of 
EPR Bell experiments, you've had a space spatial interval of something like 100 kilometers. So what does that work out at in, in terms of time for light transmission? Uh, it's, How much? Um, so <laughs> it's something like micro, uh, a few microseconds, I guess. Right. Perhaps, a, perhaps a little more than that. But, but anyway, a time scale, which is incredibly short, but not the time scale of human consciousness and so forth. So who knows? Um, speculating wildly, sure. maybe these little reversals at that kind of level are going on around us all the time, and we're just not aware of it. And, and, and again, speculation, speculation, speculation. I'm forcing you to speculate, so uh, that's, that's... But in your speculative framework, would you imagine that these reversals are consistent at that particular time scale to the extent that, um, that, that we could just keep repeating this experiment over and over and over again and, and, and we're always going to find that? Or would they be likely but not, um, not necessarily the case so that we should, we should keep doing those experiments because, gosh, every so often we're going to find the, these reversals not actually happening. I, <laughs> I don't know, frankly. Okay. Um, that's a very interesting question. And it's perhaps in some sense somewhat related to a much more general question, which I think is very frustrating and very slippery, which is, is there any kind of um, framework such that you could embed this uh, this notion about temporary and, and uh, local reversal of the arrow of time yeah. in a the larger picture in which on average as it were the first law of thermodynamics sorry second law of thermodynamics continues to work right. right. um, on some smeared out level yes. or something mm. like that yeah and I, I just don't know I mean as I say I think I always say that the most difficult Questions in physics, and you know, I speak this more general statement, um, are not the ones to which where the question is well posed and you don't know the answer. The really difficult issues are the ones where you don't really know what questions you should be asking. Right. And this is, I think, precisely one of these cases. You don't. It's just so difficult to formulate a meaningful question in this, in this area. Do Do you feel that you're Do you feel that you're getting closer? In some, in some level, I mean, you're, you've been in the theoretical physics ballgame for a very long time. Mm. You know an awful lot of things. You've seen an awful lot of things, many of, many of which have been successful and many of which have been flagrantly unsuccessful. Um, do, you, do you get a sense that you're converging on things uh, in this respect? Frankly, or? no, I think, right now. Um, no, I think... Um, I think my bet would be that um, sometime in the next 100, 200 years, say, there is going to be one more major revolution, in, at least one more major revolution in, the, uh, in physics. And I, I think my bet would be that it is somehow going to involve the arrow of time. If you look back, you see, um, you think back about the really, really big revolutions in the history of physics, like... Um, uh, you know, um, Copernicus, um, um, like Einstein, like Heisenberg, etc., etc. Every one of them has involved the abandonment of some um, principle about the world, which up to that time seemed the most basic common sense. Um, the one bit of common sense which has not been seriously challenged is the idea that the past causes the present and the present causes the future. Hmm. Just wondering if that's not the next one that's going to have to go. Well, it's the only one left. 
<laughs> some sense, yes, I think that's, that's right. Yes, that's about everything else we thought was common sense has gone out the window. So, yes, yes, indeed. When you were talking about dark energy, and 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 again, you were you were speculating, or I was forcing you to speculate. I can't remember that dark energy is somehow linked to to to. Um, I can't remember the words that you used, but we were in this uh, pre-revolutionary Kuhnian yeah. state, and mm. uh, we don't—we really don't know things. Was—was was that your—was that your instinct that somehow dark energy may be linked to this notion of the era of time uh, as well, or, or or not so much? Um, I think it could go either way. Um, I mean, right now, I think you know, there the do seem to be these serious problems in the area of cosmology on which people are energetically putting band-aids. Uh, there also seem to me these ongoing, uh, and this, this really is, is a situation of the last 15 years or so in cosmology, um, there's be also been this uh, ongoing irritant, the Schrodinger's cat paradox, which is now nearly 80 years old. Um, whether the two have any relationship or not, I don't know. Um, right. My suspicion is probably not. But, uh, right. um, I want to talk a little bit, I mean, I guess I shouldn't have looked at that, so I'll look again. <laughs> I'd like to talk a little bit about um, the anthropic principle. Okay. We haven't mentioned yeah. that. Mm. Uh, and we seem to be hitting most of the big foundational issues. Yeah. So we might as well hit that one as well. Okay. <laughs> and, and again, there was, uh, uh, to me, a sense of prescience when I read The Problems of Physics. And perhaps that's because I was fast asleep in 1987 and <laughs> simply had no idea what was going on. But um, you, you go on at, at some length uh, uh, about the anthropic mm -hmm, principle. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's one of the three, I don't remember exactly which, the skeletons in the closet, I yes, think. Yes, I think the others were indeed the arrow of time right. and the, the, the measurement, measurement problem. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're, we've almost caught them yeah. all. We're, mm -hmm. We have yeah. to go back mm -hmm. to the anthropic principle. Mm -hmm. And a couple of things struck me as, uh, as very interesting. Uh, the first was that... You mentioned that that physicists of the day, which of, of course was exactly the case, that particle physicists of the day were uh, very ambitiously proclaiming that their theories would be able to put the anthropic principle to bed once and for all because they would be able to, through their theoretical framework, uh, clearly identify uh, this, these grand theories of everything, where, yeah. where all, all the particles would necessarily be at, at some time, there would be no more free parameters, everything would be determined mm -hmm. by their theoretical framework. And Stephen Hawking at the time said that it's just around the corner of the theory of everything and the grand unified theories and so forth. Um, this was interesting because the very same people that proclaimed that with such confidence, uh, not always the very same people, but in some cases the very same people, <laughs> uh, uh, in this day and age, are are not only uh, not only have abandoned many of those claims, but have abandoned them within the framework of the anthropic principle yeah, right. itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By yeah. saying not not only is this is this uh, twenty five years ago they were saying we're going to kill this thing by developing our our theory of everything, and now they're saying we can't develop a theory of everything because of this thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> does that does that strike you first of all as uh, as ironic in any yes, way? It does. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, and and what do you think personally of the anthropic principle? Do you think it's it's an, well? Let's talk about it first because again we mm. shouldn't just be throwing throwing words around. So tell me what you mean by the, okay. the anthropic principle well, first, and then t tell me what what you think of it. Okay. Um, the the reason that people 
nowadays, as distinct from maybe in the 17th century, are interested in what we call the anthropic principle is that in the current model of particle physics, there are a large number of, um, of uh, numbers which um, don't seem to have any prior explanation. A typical example would be the ratio of the mass of the electron to the mass of the proton or the, the electron charge in appropriate dimensionless units, and so forth. Um, right now, um, the so-called standard model of particle physics has to just put those in by hand. They say, that's the way, the way it is, and we don't have any explanation of that. Um, it's for a long, long time been observed that um, not only the uh, existence of of human life and therefore presumably human consciousness, but even um, much uh, coarser features of the universe, like say the existence of galaxies and so forth, are extremely sensitive to the values of these parameters. And uh, people claim, and I can't judge the, the accuracy of this claim, but I think people claim that if you were to charge, the, uh, change the dimensionless charge of the electron by one part in, I don't know, 10 to the 8, 10 to the 9, um, what we know as as, as uh, chemistry would uh, be quite different, um, and it's improbable that human life could have evolved under those conditions, etc. So, um, so now one can, in some sense, I think, uh, pinpoint two extreme versions of the anthropic principle in this context. Uh, one extreme version would be to say, okay, God or some extraterrestrial um, influence uh, deliberately picked and chose these. Um, uh, the, the fundamental constants to have these values in order that human life should evolve. Right. The other extreme would be to say, um, well, uh, perhaps the structure of the universe is such that, in, in fact, these constants could have any values whatever. And um, perhaps there are different, let us say, different spatial regions of the universe in which they do have all possible values. Uh, but um, if indeed uh, they had values very different from what they are, then we would not be here to ask the question. And so, um, so in some sense, it's not an accident that the, uh, the value, say, of the electron charge is what it is, simply because were it not so, we would not be here. To... Right, and we wouldn't ask that question. Yes, that's right. right. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the, uh, the, first, uh, the first version, no, obviously, would appeal to... Um, people with certain kinds of religious belief, perhaps, I think, um, not uh, appeal to most physicists, qua physicists. Um, the second version is, I think, more <laughs> conjectural, really. <laughs> it's, um, uh, I think it's not totally absurd. On the other hand, it's one of those um, questions which um, it would seem to be just about impossible to ever determine, uh, to get any evidence for, for or against experimentally. Right, and earlier you called yourself... Uh... I believe a terrible paparian or strict yes. paparian or yes. a militant paparian or yes. so words to that effect. Yes. Uh, and 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 of course, many physicists have been uh, very upset at the invocation of the uh, at the use of uh, of the anthropic principle because they say exactly that. Well, it's not science. It's it's yes. it, it's just an excuse for not coming up with the scientific theory. You're saying it is the way it is because. Were it not that way, we wouldn't be asking that question, and that's not an answer, and that's not the business of no, doing science. No. The business of doing science is coming up with a, a real framework, a real structure to yes. explain. Yes. We're getting back to this notion of what yes. it means to actually yeah. explain something. 
Um, in your view, is there something to that? Is, is the anthropic principle an explanation? Is it something to be avoided at all costs? I think the question of whether, as it were, at the philosophical level, it's an explanation or not is a difficult one. Um, I think might, an easier question is, um, do I, would I advocate it at the pragmatic level or not? And I think I would not, um, sure. for the reason you essentially you said. If you, um, if, if you take that kind of explanation, then your motivation for looking for deeper reasons within the, in some sense, within the structure of the existing theory as to why these masses, mass ratios should be what they are, etc., is very much weakened. And I think, in some sense, that's a, uh, that's a bad thing in that it re reduces the probability of advances in particle physics. So, so I think, even if, in some sense, even if I believed that the anthropic principle was true, I would keep quiet about it among my colleagues. <laughs> <laughs> It would lead to lazy physics. <laughs> yes, <laughs> some things. Yes. Um, two more things to ask. Mm. Uh, you've indulged me by speculating a great deal, and I thank you for that, um, because that's much more fun than to, to, to hear somebody go on about uh, things that, uh, uh, that, he, that he or she can passionately back up, yeah. <coughs> verify. Mm -hmm. And I think few people get an opportunity to see someone uh, of your stature actually indulge in sp such speculations. Um, but I'd like you to continue. <laughs> uh, and let's say that we're going to do this um, show 10 years from now, in 2023, okay. mm -hmm. and, I, mm -hmm. and I very much hope we do. Mm -hmm. um, and what are we going to find in 2023? What's, what is going to be new and different that we will have discovered or we will have appreciated or we will have come to understand between now and the next 10 years? Oh boy. Well, <laughs> you know the, uh, I've sort of quoted this before, but you know the, um, uh, the uh, saying attributed to the jazz musician, Louis Armstrong, and someone asked him um, where jazz was going, and his answer was, man, if I knew where jazz was going, I'd be there already. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's a sort of generic answer, but um, are there, can one foresee that there are questions which we can ask today to which we will know the answer in 10 years time. No, that's not, not, my, question. not, not my question. No, that's okay. not my question. My okay. question is, what do you think? I know, I don't want a grand philosophical thing. I'm asking you to go way out on a ledge. So okay. indulge me and tell me what you, what you believe is going to be the case. With no evidence, full speculation, disclaimers, up the wazoo. I think 10 years is difficult. Really. Okay, can give me a number. 50 years? 50, 50? Yes. Yeah, you have 50. Yeah, have 50 I'm not sure we can do the thing in 50 years. But, well, no. <laughs> no, but, okay, 50 years. You have 50. I think my bit, I'd have to take even money bet that there yeah. would have been a major revolution in cosmology by that time. Okay. Um, I think there's a small but non-zero chance that the... Um, that, that we will have pushed quantum mechanics um, in the direction of the macroscopic world to the point where it'll fail, break down. Um, well, but hold, hold on, you're, you're, st you're starting to hedge your bets again. So, so do you think that quantum mechanics will break down? Yes. Whether or not we find it in 50 years or whatever, it will break down at some level? Yes. Okay. Whether, I mean, if you ask me the probability that it'll no, happen in the next five, 50 okay. years, okay. then it's pretty okay. small. Then. Okay, so maybe I asked the wrong question. So, yeah. so quantum mechanics, so at some point, and it's out there, whether or not we'll discover it or not, yes. it's a whole deeper question. Yes. But, but quantum mechanics will, will break, does break down at, at some point. Yeah, I don't believe so. I don't believe it will. Mm. Okay. Um, 
one other prediction I think I can make with a, a certain degree of confidence is that uh, we will have found um, by going to lower and lower temperatures, better and better noise control, dot, 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 we will have found um, many body systems um, which are orders of magnitude more sophisticated than we, we know at present. And what, what uh, effect will that have? I mean, technologically, uh, what, what would that imply? Will we be well, able to build a quantum computer that will be able to... Uh, I think whether or not we're able to build a quantum computer, uh, it may hinge on that, but um, I think it's more likely to hinge on much more bread and butter kinds of uh, issue. That is, can we, for example, um, engineer um, trapped ions, let's say, one, one of the favorite candidates for a quantum right. computer, can we engineer them to the point where we can address them essentially perfectly, but nature can't screw up our, our operations at, at all. Um, okay. so, I mean, I, I think, in fact, these, um, the issues involved in building a quantum computer right now are really engineering issues. Right. Right? So, so, so I, I diverted you. So, that, so what are the implications of the, the many-body systems that you were talking about? I'm not sure, but I think um, it may, in some sense, give us a new, uh, new way of looking at many-particle entanglement. Um, right now, there's a sort of fairly standard way of, of looking at that, which seems to be perfectly satisfactory for the kinds of purposes for which we need it today. Um, I think, more likely, it's going to produce new kinds of Phenomenological. I, I hate the word emergent, but perhaps this is a case where, where one, one ought to use it. Um, but it, um, it may give us sorts of new kinds of emergent concepts, so, uh, comparable to the idea of a fraction, uh, quasi-particles with fractional charge and statistics, which came out of the fractional quantum Hall effect. Right. But of course, again, we can't foresee ahead of time what kinds of concepts sure. are going to be. Sure, sure. But that would be my, my, my guess. And what advice would you give to uh, a keen foundational physicist today, uh, someone who would be 24, 25 years of age, she's just about, or perhaps she's just got her PhD, very keen, uh, crafty individual. What would you tell, and, 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 uh, and she's, she's motivated to explore foundational issues. Uh, what what advice would you give? <laughs> mm. um, I think this is my own personal uh, prejudice, and to some extent reflects my own colours and it's coloured by my own background. But I, um, I think I'd encourage her not to stick um, with the uh, the sort of a clean, well-defined microscopic systems that have been the bread and butter of, of quantum information for most of the past twenty-five years, but to explore seriously these more messy, complicated many-body systems in the hope of, of getting something useful out of them, as I think we have with topological quantum theory. Okay, I was gonna, I was, so, we, so you mentioned that. I would come, well, come back a little you, bit more to that. Whether you can count as fundamental or not, I don't know. But um, it's a, what, what it has been, I think, is an incredibly interesting way of uh, uniting issues in traditional condensed metaphysics with issues in quantum information. So, so the idea is, crudely speaking, that you... Um, you avoid the kind of um, decoherence, the, the fact that the environment is always trying to screw you up one way or another, um, which afflicts uh, standard quantum computing by 
embedding your information in non-local properties of many-body systems. So um, the uh, sort of stand, fairly standard kind of idea is that you might, in some sense, be able to think in terms of, exit of uh, fractional excitations of your many-body system, which are separated by large, large uh, distances, right. which you could then braid, uh, wind uh, around one another and so forth, in such a way as to affect um, transformations in, in your quantum system. Hence the topological nature. Right, yes, yeah. yes. I think it's an incredibly fascinating idea, and it's led to, um, I think it, it, it has led to an improved understanding of some aspects, not only some aspects of quantum information, but also some aspects of a more traditional many-body physics. I mean, I think that's certainly where some, at least some of the action is today, and, you know, and will probably continue for the next two or three decades at least. So anything I haven't asked? Anything you, uh, <laughs> you were waiting to say and I, 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 um, I, no. I, I didn't, uh, some, some pronouncement about this, that, or the other thing? Can't really think of anything. No. No. Well, thanks a lot. It's been okay. a lot of fun. I think we should do the handshake now. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About Physics, Volume 1, along with separate discussions with Nima Arkani Hamid, Arthur Eckert, David Pollitzer, and Paul Steinhardt. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com. But those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.